0: Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
1: Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting
0: checkout. Let's hear that one more time.
1: Before we start the show, a quick note to say that you'll hear a bit of salty language in the intro to this episode, not from me, but from an equally unlikely source. Anyway, on with the show. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that for the last year, most Democrats have been pretty pessimistic about their chances in the midterm elections, now just a month or so away. But are there signs of a new, more bullish mood in the party. I don't only mean moments like this one, when the president was overheard sounding, shall we say, assertive. To, no, to, no, no, one fucks right <laughs> no one F's with a Biden, said the president. And there are increasing numbers of Democrats who are sounding equally up for the fight, who think that things might just be looking up. One man noticed it before everyone else. This week, I talk to Democratic strategist Simon Rosenberg about why he thinks there's hope for his party. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America.
0: This is a very competitive election. Uh, Things are very close. It's going to go down to the wire, which means that we're all going to have a lot to chat about over the
1: next few weeks. Simon is the founder of the New Democrat Network and also the New Policy Institute, a progressive think tank based in D.C. And he was involved in the last midterm campaign back in 2018. He's also advised the UK Labour Party in the past. He's been turning some heads for a few months now, as he's been predicting a better election night for his party than almost any other commentator in Washington.
0: Listen. I had journalists laugh at me. I had, uh, you know, people uh, mock me. I mean, I even had a story in Politico claiming that I was risking reputational damage uh, over my predictions. And so, but I stuck to the numbers. I mean, I think what's important for your listeners is that every election is unique. No election is like any other election. This is. I've been doing this for thirty years, and. And I think a lot of people were projecting experiences of previous elections on to this one. And I think they, a lot of people got it wrong. And we've still got, this one has still got, I think, some twists and turns in it here in the United States in the coming weeks.
1: So let's now walk through exactly the sort of train of thought, the line of thinking. So let's start, first of all, with, before we get to how you ran against the conventional wisdom, let's just talk through what the conventional wisdom was before, hold on, and, be, and, 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 how, uh, and, and where that came from. So Many people, Democrats among them, but commentators and others, assumed that November 2022 would be a red wave, a big wave for the Republicans and a wipeout potentially for Democrats. I know it's not your view, but just talk us through why the conventional wisdom settled on that view, presumably anchored partly in those low poll numbers for Joe Biden.
0: Yeah, there were a series of things that I think generated that sort of that conventional wisdom. One is that it's just if you look at historical patterns in the United States, almost every time we have a first election right after a party wins the presidency, particularly when they control all the government, there's usually a big backlash. And so just based on historical norms. The second is that Joe Biden's approval rating was low and inflation was high. And the third thing that I think is underappreciated is that the Republicans had a lot of very contentious primaries that were late in our cycle, which meaning that we didn't have a lot of independent polling data that we normally have. And so the kind of data that I've seized on to sort of challenge the conventional wisdom, there was just less of it than usual. You know, I think part of what happens on the internet now, Jonathan, you're aware of this, is that journalists, I think, are a little bit gun shy about breaking the mold because they get attacked on Twitter and social media. And so there kind of became this herd mentality, if you want to call it, where everyone was sort of comfortable just saying this was going to be a bad year for Democrats, um, and it's turned out not to be the case.
1: I do remember, as a correspondent in Washington, one very wise, older head saying to me, got to remember, the conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C. is always wrong. Um, (laughs) And it was a good rule, actually, because it often, I mean, almost always is. So this was a bit of conventional wisdom that that was settled. It was congealed that this is going to be a blowout, terrible year. What was the first thing that came along that made you think, hold on, the conventional wisdom might be wrong on this one? So
0: in last fall, Joe Biden's approval rating dropped very significantly, very quickly. And what was interesting was that this other measure we have in American politics called the congressional generic, which is a question of, are you going to vote Democrat or Republican in the next election, didn't move. And so he came way down, but... Democrats still had a lead in the congressional generic. And what it meant was that there were a lot of people who were disappointed in Joe Biden, but that didn't mean they were going to vote Republican because the Republican Party continued to be MAGA, which was something that people had just voted against in overwhelming numbers.
1: MAGA being, of course, make America great again, the Trump slogan. Yeah, Trump, yeah, sort of the, the, new,
0: the new governing ideology of the Republican Party. And you have to remember in 2018 and 2020, we had record turnout in those two elections. So more people have voted against MAGA in in America than any other political movement in our history. And Democrats won those two elections by an average of six and a half points, which in our system is a huge margin, right? So the Republicans actually had kind of an uphill climb this election once they made this fatal choice to run towards a politics that had just been rejected overwhelmingly twice. And so the first time we saw this was in November. And then in May, um, I did. A, I was part of a series of polls of Hispanic voters in Arizona, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. And in these polls, we we were shocked with the findings, which is that Democrats are actually doing better than they were doing in 2020. Republicans were doing worse. And then everything changed with the ending of, of Roe v. Wade and and the Dobbs decision in in late June.
1: And we have talked about that specifically on the podcast, on this podcast, the galvanising, energising effect that has had on women voters in particular. And that did indeed upend the calculations of how Democrats might perform. But just on your point about, uh, you know, when MAGA, when the Trump-ism is is there uh, democrats have tended to do well the conventional wisdom held that in 2022 that would be different because trump was not on the ballot as he was in 2020 and nor was he in the white house as he was in 2018 and therefore with him no longer looming over people's right shoulder as it were when they've come to cast their ballots that effect would would be diminished or even absent in 2022 what makes you so confident that the specter of Trump for anti-Trump voters is still still so potent in 2022 that it will still go Democrats' way? Well,
0: I think, first of all, Trump has not disappeared. I think what's happened for many, many reasonable people is that, you know, they would have thought, hey, I voted against Trump. He's gone. The Republican Party will revert back to something more familiar and comfortable. And that actually hasn't happened. And I think the evidence of that is that, you know, we've had in the spring, we had this series of things congeal to your the word you used earlier, which was we had a series of mass shootings. We had the January Sixth uh, Committee hearings that took place, which were shocking, I think, to any reasonable person that watched them, and also got very, very high viewership. And then we had not just the ending of Roe, but as passing then a series of just absolutely medieval abortion restrictions across the country. Five special elections, by elections as they're called in in the UK, where Democrats have outperformed their 2020 results by seven points, meaning that we're running better than we did in 2020 an election we won by four and a half points. And so there is a lot of data showing that since the end of June the election has just fundamentally changed and, and that we yeah. have a you know we have a competitive election now, not a wave election.
1: I was struck that you mentioned in that list of things that have reminded Americans of the MAGA of Trumpism and the threat, as they might see it, uh, you mentioned the mass shootings. And again, we've talked about those on here, about Uvalde and Buffalo. Obviously, abortion rights, we know, we've talked about it, has mobilized, is mobilizing women voters. It has the issue of gun safety, gun reform, gun control, whichever term you like to use, is that because normal in the past that hasn't Born electoral fruit as an issue for democrats but is it now
0: well it has actually in 2018 we had you know after the shooting in florida dozens of students protesting in the wake of the massacre at nearby marjory stoneman douglas high school the young uh, youth movement around gun safety really exploded post parkland we've had very high turnout of young people in the last two elections in the united states and so this is an issue that's actually generated strong turnout. And remember, in the U.S., young people are 15 to 20 points more Democrat than Republican, and so and they're the least likely to vote. So in a midterm election, if young people get galvanized and if even 5% more vote you know, than we had expected, it could have an enormous impact. Biden passed a mat- the most you know, comprehensive climate bill in American history. That's a voting issue for young people in America. And so there's a lot of reasons why young people would have been woken from their slumber. And so you're seeing clear data that young women in particular, who are about two to one Democrat, are going to participate in this election in much higher numbers. That's very bad news for the Republican Party
1: let's define our terms because obviously this is not like a, a, an election a general election in in the UK or other countries this is a series of multiple elections at different tiers of government uh, and so let's just clarify our terms and we'll co- we'll concentrate on the national level because obviously there are state races state assemblies there are governors races we might touch on some of those but uh, with your confidence is this for both both sets of congressional elections elections for the house and for the senate or Do you think that the conventional wisdom, which remains pessimistic on the chances uh, of the Democrats keeping control of the House of Representatives, I know there's some, some are beginning to move, Nate Cohn of the New York Times and others perhaps, but are you more confident about Democrats and their chances in those all important Senate races? Or do you go even further and think it's possible that Democrats could retain both the House and the Senate?
0: Well, you know, in the 538, which is a site here in the U.S. for any of the political junkies that want to follow American politics, it's sort of my where I use go to get all my data.
1: I would guess you're hooked up to it intravenously. <laughs> I am. I am too much
0: so. Um, you know, they're in their one of their models. Democrats have a 60 percent chance of keeping the Senate and 40 percent chance of keeping the House. I mean, I I I think that that's a fair assessment. The, the Senate number probably even went up because we had sort of a major development in American politics. Um, Herschel Walker's campaign has imploded in Georgia. And, and if, you know, if we win in Georgia, we're leading solidly in Pennsylvania without going through all the ins and outs. It just means that the Senate now is much more likely to stay Democratic than it was even 24 hours ago. And so there's going to be a lot of optimism now about the Senate staying Democratic. In terms of the House, it's the same election, right? The same dynamics are in play, these kind of radical candidates and who are untested. For me, if you look at the modeling, the the so-called modeling of the election, as you pointed out, Nate Cohn in the New York Times said, you know, it's possible that Democrats can keep the House. And so I, I just think the way I view this, given the complexity of these races and how many there are and how inaccurate polling can be, Professionally, I just think it's a jump ball. I mean, the analogy I use, if I can use a soccer analogy, is that, you know, we're Leeds playing, you know, Man City and it's 2-2 in the 80th minute. You know, I'll take that, you know, right now. And and I think that, but we have a chance of, of winning. It's not the likely scenario, but it's not impossible.
1: Good Premier League knowledge, um, Simon. I just want—I want, want to—I want to just clarify on Herschel Walker because this story has caused great interest.
0: A former University of Georgia and NFL running back, now the Republican nominee for Georgia Senate, Herschel Walker says he wants to completely ban
1: abortion, likening it to murder, and claiming there should be no exceptions for rape, incest, or even the life of the mother. Reports of an alleged payment he made to an ex-partner to have an abortion—we should say—he categorically denies that, says he plans to sue the Daily Beast who broke the story, but it's definitely had an impact on his campaign. His own son, Christian Walker, has been tweeting about his dad's hypocrisy over his claims to be a family man and so on. Uh, So that's Georgia, an all-important race that people will remember. It was those two special elections in Georgia which gave Democrats control of the Senate back at the start of 2021. What are the other races that you've got an eye on where many would have said, yeah, that's just a lock for Republicans or leaning towards Republicans where you are now or have become more optimistic for Democrats chances?
0: Sure, so let's just go through the map for a second, right? Is that in terms of the seats that we were defending, first are our defense? You know, Washington State and Colorado, which Republicans hoped they would have a shot, those seem firmly
1: in the Democratic camp now. So those will be holds, that will be Democrats keeping those seats, yeah. So
0: New Hampshire, which was the Republicans also, which we hold, uh, that looks like it's firmly in the Democratic camp. Um, Pennsylvania, uh, uh, oh no, I'm sorry, let me go back to Arizona, also firmly in the Democratic camp. Nevada, which is one of our seats, looks like it's very competitive. I've done work there. I think that the the polling there shows the election's just sort of up for grabs. And then in Georgia, which is another hold, I think that the conventional wisdom is now that we're, you know, going to keep it. In terms of our pickups and our ability to flip seats, you know, we're ahead in Pennsylvania, I think, very comfortably. That's a pickup for us, right? So if we hold Nevada, that means we're actually gaining a seat. I think Ohio and North Carolina you know remain much closer than people expected at this point and I'm not giving up there because any any elections are close anything can happen at the end candidates can make mistakes they can have you know things like what happened to Herschel Walker right Wisconsin I think we were much more optimistic about that race a few weeks ago that we could flip that seat with Ron Johnson I think or I think that now it's been tempered a little bit. I think we've had a series of bad polls there, I think, but I, I'm not giving up there. Florida, Marco Rubio is only ahead by three or four points. Wow. And he's only, and he's an unpopular figure. He's not a well-liked figure in Florida. And he's also made some mistakes. He just voted against uh, hurricane relief for his own state. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, we'll see, I'm not giving up on that one. So what I would say is that I'd rather be us yes than them
1: I mean Florida, incredible. If that were to go, that would be an earthquake because in the Trump era it did seem as if Republicans had a lock on that. I saw some polling out of Florida for the governor race, which had Ron DeSantis, we've talked about him a lot here, um, far you know, comfortably ahead, particularly among independents and Hispanic voters, uh, that even, you know, were a group that were once relied upon by Democrats. I know Florida is different, Cuban Americans and other factors, but that's That would be a a real earthquake, wouldn't it, if Democrats were to seize what has become a Republican state?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying we're going to win there. I'm just saying that both Desantis's numbers and Rubio's numbers are not comfortable. And this idea that DeSantis is this towering figure, he only won by one percentage point last time when he won in 2018. And he's never been higher than 51% in any poll. That's not what you would think, given how much money he has, given his reputation, And remember, in Florida, Hispanics have traditionally been Republican. You know, our strength with Hispanic voters has been in other parts of the country, not in Florida. The Hispanic electorate there has historically been marginally Republican. And so that's consistent with historical patterns down there. We just had a period under Obama where we did very well with Cubans and with Hispanics in Florida. But now it's reverting back to sort of what is the traditional pattern, at least in Florida.
1: I've seen some stirrings on pollster Twitter saying that polls regularly overestimate democratic votes to do with the quirks of polling. Is it possible that you're resting all of this optimism, which many listeners will find infectious, that you're resting all of this optimism on some potentially shaky data?
0: Yeah, it's po- it's always possible. When you get polled, it's kind of easy to give an answer because you can change the answer, right? And But what matters is when you vote. And in the five special elections we've had for the House since Dobbs happened, Democrats have overperformed their 2020 numbers by seven points. I mean, that's a blue wave, right? I mean, if we were being fair-minded about that data, and if we didn't have it programmed into our head that this was going to be a good year for Republicans, objectively, that data suggests that Democrats are going to overperform their 2020 numbers.
1: Let's say you are right and republicans lose an election they had expected to win what is your i know you're on the other side of the aisle obviously but what is your expectation prediction for what happens to them you and other people who i've spoken to in recent months have said republicans have become the party of maga if they lose a third national election in a row in effect does that party begin to change course do you think the
0: way to think about the Republican Party right now is that if we were in a parliamentary democracy, there would have been a new party created that would have been anti-MAGA, center right party that would, say, be getting 5 or 6% of the vote um, with Liz Cheney and Bill Crystal and Michael Steele and others. And they would have aligned with us in some kind of coalition. Our system doesn't really allow that. And, and what is important to recognize is that the group of people who are opposing MAGA who used to be Republican is growing. It's becoming more institutional. They have more organizations. They're spending tens of millions of dollars in this election of Republicans telling other Republicans not to vote Republican. Liz Cheney is going to campaign with Democrats. You know, it's hard, it's un, in, in an unimaginable event, right, for those of us who know the history of modern American politics. The thing that's going to cause Republicans to walk away from MAGA is they keep losing, right? I mean, that more than anything else. And so, yeah, the stakes on this for the United States, for the world, right? Because if if Republicans come into power in the House, we could see, for example, it will be much more difficult for Joe Biden potentially to continue the efforts in Ukraine. I mean, we could have a significant geopolitical impact of us losing either one of these chambers. And that's why the stakes in this election are not only high for us here in the US, but for the whole world.
1: Well, let's just run with that hypothesis. Let's say you are wrong and Democrats do lose in one or both houses of Congress. What is the fallout inside? You've talked about the geopolitics, but what is the fallout inside your own party, the Democrats? Does Joe Biden's authority get so uh, depleted that the pressure starts mounting on him to declare that he will not seek re-election in 2024?
0: So my view is that there's a very high likelihood that Joe Biden doesn't run no matter what you know, because of his age. And so I, I'm sort of sanguine either way, meaning that Joe Biden will only run if he's strong enough, if he understands that he's strong enough to win. This is not going to be a quixotic effort, you know, in the, going off into the sunset. And if he doesn't run, I think, the, you know, the baton getting passed will be to a very strong set of Democrats. And so I, I, I'm very optimistic about the Democratic Party's sort of medium and long-term chances here. I, I feel good about where we are.
1: You've tempted me by talking about the that baton passing and a range of uh, exciting Democrats. Who do you have in mind? Who would you like to see if we get to that situation?
0: The way to think about it is that we're going to see over the next five to 10 years, regardless of what happens with Joe Biden, a generational turn in the Democratic Party. Nancy Pelosi, Bernie Sanders, you know, Joe Biden you know, the Clintons, right, will be really in the rearview mirror soon, right? It will happen over the next few years. And a new set of leaders will emerge. In the House we will the next leader is a guy named Hakeem Jeffries, who's from New York, who's a wonderfully talented, capable new leader that all of us will get to know all across the country. You just look, Jared Polis in Colorado, Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, who's been such an impressive candidate, Gina Ramondo, who's a very been a very impressive cabinet official you know, for the Democrats, Um, you know, Gavin Newsom, Kamala Harris. I mean, these are very, very capable. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, Kamala, obviously, the vice president. These are unbelievably capable, national quality candidates or or figures that are going to emerge.
1: Simon, we do always like to ask our guests on the podcast, a what else question, something very different. This week, Donald Trump is suing CNN, the cable TV network, claiming defamation. And and he wants punitive damages of nearly half a billion dollars, $475 million, for what he says was a smear by CNN, calling him a racist, a Russian lackey, an insurrectionist. He's filed the suit in Florida. uh, As you and I speak, CNN have not responded. But normally we're quite used to Donald Trump being sued, or at least having indictments arrayed against him, now he's coming to court as the complainant. How do you rate his chances in this one?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, listen, I, we didn't really get to talk about this, about sort of what's happening with Trump, right? And what's the trajectory of Trump's journey in American politics? And the truth is that he's at his lowest approval rating today <clears throat> since he announced for president in, in 2015. You know, he, he is getting slowly – his brand is being slowly degraded. The Washington Post had a story that had his lawyers talking about how he packed up the 15 boxes that got sent back to the government earlier this year um, because none of the staff were willing to touch – any of the documents, because they knew there was classified information in them. And they knew that if they even touched them, that they would be illegal. This could be the greatest security breach in the history of the United States. And and we are dealing with something of enormous gravity. And I don't think that he's going to be a major candidate for the Republicans in 2024, which means that your, one of your future guests should be talking about what happens with the transition in the Republican Party. Because I think DeSantis, for all of his bluster, has also demonstrated to me in the last few weeks that there's reasons to doubt whether he's really ready for the national stage. He's made a series of unbelievable blunders. And I think Republicans objectively have to be a little bit worried about his performance over the last few weeks.
1: Of course, Donald Trump denies all charges against him. We have to uh, make that clear. Simon Rosenberg, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast this week.
0: It was wonderful to be here to be with you.
1: And that is all from me for this week. As we approach the elections, I want to tell you about our plans for covering the midterms. In less than a month, I'll be travelling to the US, embarking on a road trip through several states, talking to voters, to journalists, to people working on the campaigns, those behind the scenes, canvassing to get people to the polls, and of course, a few politicians along the way. So please do stay tuned for our special election coverage, which starts On November the second, but for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens. The executive producer, Maz Eptahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening.
0: This is the Guardian. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early